Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. My son, Arthur, says this is the best book on investing he's ever read. Mind you, he's only 21 and has not read many others. <laughs> Nor felt that sinking feeling when the value of your portfolio takes a plunge. Mm. Today, we're joined by Richard Oldfield, whose career in finance has been as long as ours, Jonathan, uh. but a good deal more lucrative. Mm. Escaping from the food department at Harrods half a century ago, <laughs> he sensibly chose investment <laughs> banking rather than journalism. I From Warburg's <laughs> later Mercury Asset Management to his own firm, Oldfield Partners, he's seen even more business cycles than Raleigh. The book that captured my son's imagination is called Simple But Not Easy, which is about as good a summary of the art of investing as I've seen. So, Richard, welcome. Thanks very much. Can I ask one question? When you When you departed from Harrods, I assume it was departing a job rather than leaving in a hurry it with was a purloined ham. It was on mutual <laughs> terms. <laughs> I can assure you it was on mutual terms. Mutual terms, okay. <laughs> um, m- marvellous son you've got. Um, I- I'm-, I'm very impressed by his taste. His comment and your comments on his comments slightly reminds me of what William Rees Mogg wrote about my book. What he'd written was, the best book of its kind I have ever read. Indeed, I think the only book of its kind I have ever read. <laughs> Ah, Mystic (laughs) Mog, the man whose predictions would be guaranteed to go wrong. Oh, yes, yeah. So, why do you call investing simple? Because most of us... The title of the book being simple but not easy. I think that the rudiments of investment in equities, and I'm not, I absolutely am not talking about rather kind of abstruse modern inventions. I'm not talking about derivatives. I'm not talking about contracts for difference and those sorts of things. I'm talking about straightforward equity investment. I think the rudiments are pretty simple. That doesn't mean the businesses are simple. Businesses are very complicated. But the ground rules, the, the rules of thumb for investment, I think are are straightforward, and they are that valuations matter. Equities, in the long run, are likely to give the best return of most major forms of asset, but it has to be the long run. There is a wonderful graph, which I always say is a a graph which an equity investor should have under his or her pillow at night, which shows the return of the equity market since, I think it's beginning of time, 1862 or something like that. And it shows a nice... I'm not sure many of us could really take such a long view. No, but the point about this graph is that it is a quite remarkably unvolatile line which shows a real return of, as it happens, I think it's 6.2% per annum for the US equity market and something lower for most markets, all other markets. And of course, there will be one or two exceptions. I mean, show me the graph for Argentina and I might not be so keen. Show me the graph for Japan, not so keen. But... If you're looking at a diversified international portfolio with major markets, then on the whole, the outcome is very clear that in the long term, equities give a very good real return with major disappointments. Well, I've seen that chart and it's a very interesting one because if you try and spot things like the Great Crash, the Panic of 87, and indeed the subsequent problems in 2008 and onwards, 
you can hardly see exactly. any sort of significant dip. Exactly. They don't exactly. add up to They're anything. little blips. What about um, the whole of the 70s? Did that look good on your chart? Even, even in the 70s, if you invested not at the top, if you invested at the top of the range of sort of one standard deviation away from the, the median real return, that would be pretty painful for quite some time in periods like the 70s. But if you invested when you were at the median real return, then within a period of, I think, six years, without fail, in the whole of that, whatever it is, 145 years or whatever, in the whole of that period, you would, might have dropped very far below initially, but you would have got back to the median line within six years. In other words, from investment, you would have had a 6.2% real return. Right. So valuations matter. This was an answer to a question about why it was simple. So I'm going on far too long about something which is... <laughs> You're not saying about two standard deviations, <laughs> which doesn't sound very yes, simple to I'm me. I'm not sure I can cope <laughs> but, with these. But <laughs> too many. <laughs> two is too many. Okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll shut up on this soon. But um, The punchline is buy equities. There are two punchlines. Right buy equities and valuations matter. And why is that not easy? It's not easy because it is emotionally extremely difficult. Because if you buy a company whose share price is depressed, it's depressed for a reason. Something's gone wrong. It may, mm. be, it may be the whole sort of global environment or the environment in the country, or it may be something specific to the company. But it's very difficult to buy when everybody else is, or most other people are running in the opposite direction. Very often you will be wrong about the buying, and then you feel a fool. Yeah. And that's the value trap, which I think is the occupational hazard of the value investor and is inescapable. And just on your rules of thumb here about, I know you carved out Japan from your yeah. rule of thumb, but it is the perennial trap of it is. investors. Because yeah. they always look at the graph going back to 1989 yeah. and they go, how low can it get? Yeah. These are great companies. These are world-class companies. They're fantastic. They must be mm. cheap. And they never I, are. I, I can't remember a period when I wasn't optimistic about Japan. Japan, yeah. And why doesn't it fit in your rule, do you think? I don't know that it doesn't. I think it does fit in my rule. But it's, it's just taking rather long <laughs> <laughs> to prove okay. it. So this is the third rule. Everyone else has to agree with you at some point. It's uh, Keynes' of point course, about people, of course being, people yes, of course. being yeah. insolvent before the markets become rational. And that's why I think diversification is very important. I mean, it applies just as much to a single company. You can fall in love with a company. Company, mm. and particularly the more you know it, I think ordinary right. life, isn't it? The more you know it, the more dangerous it becomes because yep. you, especially if it's done you well, yeah. you feel that somehow you owe it some sort of strange loyalty. I think when that's right. Actually, of course, the share has no idea whether you own it or not. Exactly. Yeah. The great divide at the moment is active versus passive yep. funds. The sort of logic says that if the average fund manager is going to underperform, which almost by definition he will, yeah. then you are better off in a passive fund. I don't mean a pass your Rip Van Winkle fund, uh, buy it and forget it, but actually just buying one of these traded funds, which does all that sort of mechanical stuff for you. Your defense of active management in your book is a bit sort of equivocal, if I read it right. Do you think um, that's fair? No, I don't think so. I don't think it's fair. <laughs> I, think it's a vocal, <laughs> I think it's a vocal defense. I mean, what I, what I say is, in part, what you have just said, which is that we know that the average fund manager is going to underperform. 
And when we fund managers, of course, also manage to convince ourselves we're part of the minority who are going to outperform. There's that thing about British drivers that 90% of British drivers mm. think that they're above average. Well, my members all demand above average wages. Of course. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it is a, it's a sobering fact because it isn't true of, of most professions. I mean, journalists are expected to get their facts right. Accountants are expected to make the figures add up. Postmen are expected to deliver the letters to 99.9%. But these are baselines, not averages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Slightly, but, different, but slightly invest- different. Yeah, yeah. But investment managers, we know, on average, will underperform. So I'm not, when you say equivocal, I think I belong to the kind of David Swenson school in this respect. David Swenson wrote more than two books, probably. But in the first book, Pioneering Portfolio Management, he said that at Yale, they chose active managers and they were very good at it. And this is how they did it. In the second book, which was for the retail market, he said, don't attempt active management. You should buy an index fund. So I think that it is possible for sensible people doing a sensible amount of work to choose a range of managers, the majority of whom will outperform the majority of the time. Can I ask one question? If you employ an active manager and you pay the fees for that, do you set him a target against a benchmark? Yes. You do? Yes. I mean, there are lots of people who set a beat inflation target. Mm. But inflation is, is so an irrelevant to... Yeah. It's not a market benchmark. Yeah. Yeah. But if the market is up by 30% and a fund is up, an equity fund is up by 20%, it's beaten an absolute return target. But is it good? Is it bad? It's impossible to judge it. Right. And so only a market benchmark gives you a proper means of judging whether you're doing well or badly, both for the manager and for the, the client. So I think it has to be a market benchmark. And how long do you give him? That is a very <laughs> tricky question because, I mean, if you take 1999, the worst thing to do was to hire the managers who just perform well. So this uh, is a dot-com bubble when everyone who's buying... Yeah. In judging managers, I advocate that you should you try to judge the people, you should try to judge the approach, whether it makes sense and whether it's in tune with what you want. You should judge the process, and very often as little process as possible is the best. And then you should judge the environment the manager is working in, which is, I think, very, very important, what type of firm it is. But I don't include performance in that list of four because performance is always in our mind. We can't escape the bias that good or bad performance gives us when we look at a manager. But it is true that immediate past performance has very little impact on on what performance will be in the future. I think you should eradicate it from your mind as far as possible when you're judging a manager and judge on those other factors. I must ask you about ESG and the impact that that has on psychology and the art of investing. Is this something which you think is like a sort of drag anchor on investment performance? Or is it something which uh, allows us all to feel jolly good at zero cost? I think it's, um, it, can be a, it could be a drag anchor, not because investing in things which are environmentally positive, socially good, have good governance, not, not because they will necessarily perform badly. Governance is very important. It may be that companies which are environmentally very positive have very strong businesses but they could be extremely strongly valued and so but so I don't think they are better or worse placed than other sectors non-ESG sectors if you like or at least non-E sectors but the Dranga anchor aspect is the two target problem I used to be chairman of a, an investment trust called Keystone Investment Trust they two years ago replaced 
the manager with Bailey Gifford. Uh, Bailey Gifford are a wonderful firm, but they are growth investors. And they changed the nature of the fund, and they called it Keystone Positive Change. One of my little rules of Always thumb. Always a bad Quite. sign. All, uh, one of my worst investments, I think, called the Brunswick Russian Capital Appreciation Fund. Always beware of a fund which, which <laughs> says it's going to do superbly. Quite all, so, all. so positive change. Well, the positive change has been that it's fell 35% in the last year, and I'm not sure what it fell by in the previous year. <laughs> it um, was the positive that was wrong. I think the problem is the two-target phenomenon, that if you aim for two targets then you may miss both. They are aiming to have a positive impact through the companies in which they invest. At the same time, they're aiming to get a good return. I think they're two different targets, and that's very different from an ESG process which is embedded in in the investment process. I think if you have ESG which is embedded in the sense that you judge them, particularly the the governance and the social aspects of of the company, that's pretty important to the investment case. And the environmental case is also increasingly important. That's very different from measuring with particular measures the environmental and social and governance impact of a company and then putting that in a completely different table to the table of investment returns. Yeah, I find it impossible to work out how you measure. It seems to me what you're trying to measure is a measure of social impact of some sort. And how you achieve that? I've well, no I, I don't. I don't. I think it's very difficult too. And as you probably know, the various indices are very inconsistent. I mean, the MSCI and other indices, in the way they treat these ESG things, are very inconsistent. It's very much work in progress. I mean, of course, it's important that Rio Tinto don't destroy lots of fantastically ancient paintings in in caves in northwest Australia. And of course, it's important that if they do destroy them. There are management changes. People are held responsible for it. So, of course, social does matter, but measuring it, I quite agree, is very difficult. I think the last year has played havoc with a lot of the notions of of ESG. Of course, the word which is missing from ESG is ethical. And you can be quite environmental and quite social and quite governance-minded without being very ethical. I think that ESG, in many cases, has actually been a distraction. Also, (laughs) the list of sort of banned activities changes all the time because I'm not actually quite sure whether armament manufacturing is now ESG or not exactly you know suddenly we've decided that uh, we'd quite like a bit of armament manufacturing thank you very much I completely agree I had rather a row with a friend about investing in airlines he took great exception to investing in EasyJet but I would I would regard it as completely hypocritical to ban investment in EasyJet or other airlines. When I fly on EasyJet, he flies on EasyJet. It just doesn't seem reasonable to apply to investment rules which you don't apply in your own life. Can we talk about fees and investment styles and things that charge very high fees and things like hedge funds and private equity? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think. Do you think they earn their money? No, I think they don't earn their money. No. Why do hedge funds charge them? used to be 2 and 20, now it's under pressure, it's not 2 and 20 anymore. But why did that start? It started because of um, 
sea captains who charge 20% yeah. to take a cargo around the Cape of Good Hope, which was a very dangerous thing to do. Yeah. And hedge fund managers, on the whole, are not risking their lives in that way. <laughs> and, or indeed and then, anything much. And then in the 60s, the, yeah. the progenitor of hedge funds, whose name for the moment escapes yeah, me. He's called, he's an Australian called... A.W. Jones. A.W. Jones. Jones. Anyway, A.W. Jones started what was regarded as the first hedge fund, and he happened to charge 2 and 20 and so that was a very fortunate precedent for all the hedge fund managers that have followed. But, I mean, first of all, I'm quite sympathetic to a ban on short selling. You don't do it in any other department of life. You don't sell a house you haven't got. You don't sell a necklace you haven't got. You don't sell a picture you haven't got. Why should you sell shares that you haven't got? And I think it gives rise to bad practices. And it's particularly dangerous now that information spreads instantly not just information, but gossip spreads instantly. And so I think it's very damaging for banks, which are intrinsically fragile anyway. And we've seen all that just recently. So I'm very sympathetic to a ban on short selling. It's always struck me as a fundamentally flaky thing to do. A.W. Jones, who you've just referred to, he set up his fund in the 60s or 50s, I can't remember. 65, I think it was. Yeah. And basically, most of his clients were wealthy individuals. Fast forward to now... Yeah. And the majority of clients are institutions, so people who are yeah. basically r- running money for the average man in the street, maybe. These people are supposed to have purchasing power, mm. and yet mm. they've had very, very little pressure. And why does this not happen in the investment industry? I really industry? don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's great um, for investment I mean, managers. I think there are two things why there's such an enthusiasm for hedge funds. The first is an exaggerated view of the importance of volatility. Mm. If you are a long-term investor, then equities are the best place you should be but you do have to be long term but even those who are long term so institutions endowment funds which should have a very long term view care far too much about volatility yep. and hedge funds seem to provide a nice solution and they did do for some years they seem to do it very nicely yep. but on average they haven't done it nicely over the long term at all of course there are very good hedge funds you managers. mean damping down the ups and downs yes and yep. and, and, and getting a reasonable return yeah in the uh, which may be in a not very good period for equities beat equities yeah the other reason is hope springs eternal ah and particularly because, attracted by very high fees, you do get some very good and certainly very convincing people. <laughs> Not the um, same thing. Who, no, but they are, they are sometimes the same thing. You get some very good people who start running a hedge fund. But there are two wonderful sort of pieces of data. One is an analysis of what would happen if you invested in Berkshire Hathaway in 1965 uh, compared with a hedge fund which invested in Berkshire Hathaway in 1965 with a manager who took two and 20 and who reinvested the 20, the profits that he made in Berkshire Hathaway. And the answer was, and again, these are sort of stylized figures, that if you invested um, X thousand dollars, at the end of the period, the owner of the money had uh, made a very large return. I think $10,000 turned into $365,000. The manager of the money had made $4.3 million, so a multiple of 10 to 1, roughly. So you, can see why, you can see why they go into the business, You can see why you? they go into the business, yeah. So I, I don't know why there hasn't been more pressure. That is a bit of a mystery to me. It isn't a very efficient market, is it? Speaking as a fund manager, of course, it's not a great concern. <laughs> well, I have always, and I've got a chapter on fees and a chapter on hedge funds in this book. Yeah. I got a lot of criticism in 2007 from hedge fund manager friends who were very yeah. put out by this thing, in which I was very careful to say there are some who are absolutely worth their salt, but it's very difficult to tell in advance who they are. Mm. 
Well, what about rising rates? What does that mean for equity investors? Is this a it can't be in principle good. No, that's what I would have thought. <laughs> um, uh, no, it is quite possible that you get a period in which value and deep value does relatively well. Well, first of all, it does relatively well because mm. it tends to in time of rising interest rates, partly because if the discount rate is rising, that's very bad for growth yep. companies. But it may even do absolutely well because the valuations are very low. This is always a question of, you know, a whole row of pluses and a whole row of minuses. I think you have to put in the minus column for equity markets uh, rising interest rates. Yep. And, and they probably haven't reached their peak because I don't think they've reached a point of equilibrium until you've got a sensible relationship between interest rates and inflation. We've had 10 years in which there hasn't been a sensible relationship. Mm. And so there are, there's a whole generation which is sort of perfectly accepting that interest rates are below the rate of inflation. Yeah. But our generation doubts that that is a proper norm. It's not a norm. The norm is that you get a higher rate of, you get a higher rate of interest than the rate of inflation. So I do think that we won't be sort of relaxed until we get back to that state of affairs. Yeah, I'm sure yeah, that's true. And history shows that squeezing inflation out of an economy is always a painful process yep. and you could argue that we are just starting the pain now toothpaste you know that one what you it was, it was it the head of the head of the bundesbank i forget which head of the bundesbank said it's like squeezing toothpaste out of the out of the thing it's quite easy to get out but it's very difficult to get yeah, it back in <laughs> <laughs> i'm not much impressed by that really, but still <laughs> mm. Well, we, one thing we haven't discussed is is London, you know, where's it all going? Is the party over? And should we all just move to the continent? Paris is apparently, you know... Quite Very congenial. Is congenial, <laughs> good food, something going on, apparently. Yeah. I think it looks very grim at the moment. I mean, I think it's a combination of governments changing every 20 minutes, very poor government, and Brexit, which has lowered the, the reputation of the UK as a sort of sensible place. I think back to two things. I mean, things do change. Plus Sachon, plus c'est la même chose. Look back to the US in the um, in the 80s when I lived there, uh, very early 80s. I was there at the time when President Carter was president. The helicopters crashed in the desert trying to fish out the people who were, who were hostages in Tehran. Oh, yeah. The self-interest rates were at 14%, inflation was at 14%. The self-esteem of America was at rock bottom. Yeah. All the airport stands, book stands, were full of books about how wonderful Japan was. Shouldn't we be more like Japan? Yeah. Ten years later, America was the only game in town. Yeah. I think these things could, uh, can change. And I don't think it really the problem with UK sort of valuations and the attitude of companies to the stock exchange is to do with listing difficulties or the lack of an, an industrial strategy. People are always saying, we don't have an industrial strategy. What industrial strategy should we have? <laughs> Just as well we haven't got one because yes, it's probably the yes. wrong one. So I don't think it's that. I think it's these other things that I've just mentioned, and they can change. So I'm not permanently pessimistic. But the other example, which you mentioned earlier, is Japan. I mean, maybe oh. we have gone into this terrible state of never oh, no. never getting out of it. Yeah. But I don't believe so. I think that um, the sun will come out tomorrow. Well, the main thing about Japan is we didn't start in the high point that they did in 1989. No, absolutely. That's a, that's a, well, that is a, that's a very good point. Yeah. And on the contrary, I mean, if you look at valuations of all the developed markets, the only one which is below is Schiller rating, it's, or, or, which is a long-term measure yeah. of valuation, present prices to the last 10 years average of earnings. The only one is the UK. 
Okay, by British folks. By, Bri- by Britain. By British. <laughs> I think I, I would... Bagging ag- Britain. No, I, w- I would agree with you. Uh, and I don't think that we should be wearing sackcloth. I think there is, there's a lot going on which may not be particularly visible at the moment, particularly in technology and to a lesser extent in medicine and discoveries there. It's a huge amount of just under the surface of talent and discoveries and businesses which are doing well despite the government rather than because of it. Good. I'm usually optimistic. I am very optimistic. (laughs) I am very optimistic. That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.